You're listening to the Empowered Woman, Badass and Unfiltered Podcast, a place for inspiration, empowerment, and personal development. Showcasing badass women from all over the world, giving tips on personal development, mindset, and healing. I'm your host, Olivia, transformational success coach for spiritual female entrepreneurs. Now let's dive into this episode. Welcome back to the Empowered Woman, Badass, and Unfiltered Podcast. Your host, Olivia here, and today we are sharing the secrets to a genuinely joyful life. Today, I have CJ Scarlett. She is also known as the Badass Grandma. And you know, when I found this out, I was just like, okay, of course, like the Badass Grandma on the Empowered Woman, Badass, and Unfiltered, like what better of a combination? She's a danger expert and the author of The Unfair Advantage, The Badass Parent's Guide to Predator-Proofing Tween and Teens, Badass Parenting and Heroic Parenting, which help parents empower their kids to to protect and defend themselves from dangerous people. CJ knows firsthand how violence can destroy lives. A survivor of childhood sexual abuse, CJ spent years dealing with emotional aftermath, well, the emotional aftermath of her experience. After taking her power back, she became an advocate for others who have been victimized, running a child advocacy center and serving as as director of victims issues for the North Carolina Attorney General's office. Over 30 years as a victim's advocate, CJ has helped thousands of survivors claim their power too. The former roller skating car hob, foster foster firefighter, and U.S. Marine photojournalist holds an interdisciplinary master's degree in in humanities with an emphasis on human violence. Named one of the happy 100 people on the planet. CJ's story of triumph over adversity is featured in several best-selling books all the way from Raleigh, North Carolina. Her links are in the show notes below. Definitely check them out and connect with her. Oh, this is so much fun. I'm so excited to talk about this. I have looked forward to this interview for weeks, Olivia. Thank you so much for having me as your guest. Oh, absolutely. So let's talk about the things that you had to overcome you know, and how you really, I feel like some of the happiest people are the people that have been through the worst things. Yes, because it tests your metal and forces you to go places in your, your mind and your spirit that you wouldn't normally go. And Absolutely. so stronger, it does. So I was molested by several different people as a child. And then when I was 19, I was raped by a sheriff's deputy I was dating and by my Marine Corps recruiter. And I had developed severe PTSD that followed me throughout my life, along with bipolar disorder. This is actually the first time I'm sharing this on a podcast, but I was uh, not diagnosed with bipolar disorder until I was in my 20s, but I'd had it since I was a teenager. So I was grappling PTSD and bipolar disorder most of my life. Can you go ahead? explain to the audience what bipolar disorder is? I feel like when I even found out the real definition um, of it, I felt like society had pushed out a completely different misconception about it. Yeah, there there's a huge stigma associated with it. And there's a lot of misconceptions out there. So I'm glad that you asked that. It is a mental illness. It is a a physiological 
chemical imbalance in your body that makes you fluctuate between depression and mania. And I tend to be more toward the manic than the depressed. My twin brother, who is also bipolar, tends more toward the depressed than the mania. But it runs in my family. My dad had it and another sister had it. So um, it does tend to run in families. Thank you for sharing that. Sorry. Yeah. Continue. No, it's important for people to know and understand what this is. And, and like I said, there's a very big stigma attached to that. People hear bipolar, they immediately think you're completely dysfunctional and you can't cope and you can't be um, a, a contributing member of society that you're constantly a mess. And that's just simply not true. You know, people who get the right help and get on the right medications can live extremely functional, happy lives, just like everybody else. Thank you. So, yeah. So I, I dealt with these things until 19, I, I didn't deal with these things for, I, because I had suppressed them, most of them. I mean, I remembered, but I, I just kept running away from it. I kept engaging in behaviors, risky behaviors, sexually and spending money and things like that that go with bipolar disorder, but also the PTSD. And so I was running away from my traumas and that wasn't working. And in 1990, my my, I was in the middle of a meeting and I burst into tears and I ran to the bathroom and cried for two hours and couldn't even tell the people who were the women who were in the bathroom with me why I was sobbing so hard. I couldn't, I couldn't, but I ran away to Connecticut for a week. Didn't literally run away. I, I went to Connecticut for a week, like my husband, and my two young boys. And I took my first journal with me and I started writing down all the things that had happened to me. And I, at the same time, I, um, two other things happened. I got in, uh, became a member of a group at the local rape crisis center, which was tremendously helpful. And I was diagnosed with lupus and scleroderma, which are autoimmune diseases that interestingly, women who have been traumatized, sexually traumatized, often develop these autoimmune conditions. We have these, the cortisol and the adrenaline running through our body. Most of our lives we're on, we're trying to um, overcome these things without actually dealing with them. And our, it's, I heard once that disease is a soul screaming through the body. And that's exactly what happened to me. My body said to me, until you deal with this, we're not going anywhere. So I became disabled at that point by the lupus and scleroderma. So I was, I had to stop working, but I was able to, to start going back to college when I was 30. At the same time, I, I entered therapy for these issues and it was in graduate school that I decided to study human violence. I was work, uh, volunteering at the local rape crisis center. And I was so fascinated by, you know, I wanted to know how people could do the things they, awful things they do to other people. And so this degree I got, this um, interdisciplinary degree was a combination of criminology and sociology. I went a long way to teaching me why people, seemingly normal people can do horrible things to other people. And I used, while I was still in graduate school, I got a job as the executive director of that child advocacy center in Elizabeth City, North Carolina, and then followed my heart to Raleigh to get married. Um, and that's when I started working for the North Carolina Attorney General's office. But in the late 90s, um, I became so debilitated by lupus. I was 240 pounds because I was on massive doses of prednisone and dexamethasone. I couldn't get upstairs except on my hands and knees. I couldn't turn a doorknob. Some days I couldn't hold a hairbrush. I was in constant pain. And in 2002, my doctors told me that my heart was failing, that I was going to die and that it could happen at any time. And Olivia, I was petrified. And I dove into this deep depression and waited to die. I was bedridden a lot. And so I just curled up into a ball and waited to die. And then I got the chance to meet privately with a Tibetan Buddhist Lama for advice. 
And so I hobbled up to the llama's house and I made a pitiful bow and I burst into tears and I waited for him to shower me with much deserved sympathy, I thought. And that's when I learned that llamas don't do dramas because he very kindly, but very sternly told me to stop feeling sorry for myself and start thinking about the happiness of other people. Mm. And I was shocked and I was offended and I was defensive because I couldn't take care of myself. How could I possibly take care of anyone else? But he insisted, stop feeling sorry for yourself and start thinking about the happiness of other people. On the way home, I'm driving my van and I'm thinking, what can I possibly do in my debilitated state to help anybody? When an ambulance went by with a siren blaring and I said a quick wish for the person inside that they would find help and healing. And I thought, well, that was easy. I can do things like that. So I started letting the other drivers get ahead of me in line and letting the mom with the crying baby at the grocery store go ahead of me in line and leaving the better handicapped parking spot for someone else. And mm. just little things that didn't cost anything in terms of time or effort. And I felt a little bit happier. So I started to do more. I began uh, a campaign, kindness cure campaign. And it made it a daily practice to do at least one act of kindness every single day. So I was leaving inspirational notes on the car side windows, uh, the car, the driver's side windows at the cancer center and in books at the library and at the used bookstore so that people would randomly find these inspirational notes. I was, I volunteered at the Red Cross after Hurricane Katrina. I gave an elderly woman my cane who, you know, who was, who was struggling to walk. I gave her my cane. Little things, again, that didn't cost anything in terms of time or money, but made me feel so good because what had happened, Olivia, is I become so consumed by my own story, my own victim thinking, because it dominated me. And I forgot that everyone is fighting a hard battle. Absolutely everybody is mm. fighting a hard battle that we know nothing about. And doing these acts of kindness opened my heart. And it made me recognize our shared humanity and the, the suffering that we all share. It wasn't my particular suffering. The universe didn't have it out for me. Yeah. It suffers in some way. And, and then I reached a point where I was so happy that it didn't matter whether I was sick or well, or even living or dying. I was just content. And at that point, my condition went to remission all within 18 months after I started performing the acts of kindness. Wow. Yeah. I, I actually spoke on this on Tuesday about how we speak to ourselves and how to, you know, build your self-worth. Um, because in your situation, when you're thinking so negatively about yourself for so long mm -hmm. and, and start. And I, I mentioned, you know, it's important to compliment other people because your subconscious mind does not know the difference. If you're talking about somebody else, or if you're talking about yourself, it just knows that you're, you're in a positive state and you're mm -hmm. saying something positive. Right. And, and then you start to, and I, I, as you were talking about it, I was feeling the weight being lifted as you were saying this for the person in the ambulance and just doing all of these other acts of kindness, because it's like, you're, you're doing good things and you're, you're shifting your energy. Mm -hmm. um, and and your body literally starts creating endorphins, which are mood boosters and serotonin or serotonin, which are mood boosters and endorphins, which are painkillers. And mm -hmm. so I was literally by these acts of kindness, healing my body from the inside out. Oh yeah. And that, that the fact that it's so healing mm -hmm. in, in all of this, that, that is so amazing, but yeah. How did you, and, you know, in this 18 months in this process after, you know, you had started facing the things that you had been avoiding for so long. And I know like that, that experience had to be crazy too. And I mean, do you feel like when you started facing it, was that when you started developing the lupus and everything like that too? It, it just all came at the same time. It's not, you know, it's no, okay. 
I think that within two weeks after I started dealing with my my traumatic past that I I was diagnosed with these. Now I'd had the health issues before, but they had never been properly identified and diagnosed by doctors. But there is no coincidence that my body shut down at the same time the memory started coming back because it did not want, I you know I sometimes the pain has to become greater than our ability to contain it for us to move forward. Yeah, because we we cannot continue to avoid it. Yeah. Yeah. And you know, the, the healing comes, but in that healing, it isn't easy. I mean, the, during those 18 months, you know, can you talk about some of the battles you faced as you were moving into this new state of mind? Well, it's really interesting. You know, death, most people are terrified of death. And I certainly was. And I started having nightmares. Almost every night, this dark man, faceless man would shoot me, stab me, choke me, Um, I was sucked up in tornadoes and drowned in tsunamis. I went down in flaming airplanes. I mean, it was, I had terrifying dreams almost every single night and I would wake up gasping and and sometimes crying in terror. And one time I had a dream. I remember (laughs) I was driving a car and it flew over a cliff and my body flew out of the car and it landed really hard on the ground. And I thought, I thought, well, I can't be dead because you know, you don't die in your dreams. And I saw something slowly flutter to the ground and I picked it up and I looked at it and it was a death certificate. <laughs> but one night the dark man came to shoot me and I was, Olivia, I was so tired. I literally said to him, I, sur- I surrendered. I said, go ahead. I- I'm just so tired. I don't care anymore. And he shot me. And then another night later, a couple of nights later, I had another dream where he came and he came into a room full of people and shot me again. But I looked at him. And I just accepted it. I did, like I said, I just surrendered. Mm. And the, my dreams began to shift in the airplane. It was go, as it was going down in flames. I would, in my dreams, would turn to the person beside me and just say, "I love you" and mean it. As I was getting sucked into the tornado, I would find myself finding a moment of calm and clarity. The last time I dreamed of the dark man, he came into another room of people, filled with people, and he had to take somebody's life. And I volunteered, and I said, "If you have to take someone, take me." And he, this is kind of gross, but he began eating my arm, but he also looked up at me with so much gratitude and love. And I said to him, I love you. And I never dreamed of him again. And I have never been afraid of distance. I had absolutely no fear. Wow. That experience just in your dreams, like, cause I've had some crazy dreams, but eating the, eating your arm and you're like, I love you mm-hmm. and meaning it in mm-hmm. your dream. Cause I know that you, you meant it, you know, mm-hmm. and I, was it because of the shared suffering? Yeah, I think so. I recognized that death had, you know, death had a job to do that was not personal. Death didn't have it out for me. Death didn't want to hurt me. It's natural that we die. Mm-hmm. I was afraid of several things about dying. I was afraid of missing the party. I was afraid of, I would die with, in pain. I was afraid I would, you know, of egolessness. I was afraid nothing would be there after, you know, all these things that people fear about death. I had them all too. And in the process of having these dreams, I recognized that death is kind of a friend. It's like, it's like a midwife, just like being born. Dying is a, is a, is a, a transition and that's all it is. I, I've come to that acceptance with death um, simply because, you know, my father passed away when I was 20 mm. and I lost my, one of my aunts when I was 10. Um, and I just, I, I came to understand that things are, it is a transition. 
you know, mm-hmm. we're, we're in, we are spiritual beings having a human experience. Yeah. And I think that maybe that was just what it was necessary for you at that yeah. time to, yeah. to actually accept that this part of life was, was a thing and you no longer needed to fear it. That's right. And I was doing a lot of forgiveness work at the same time for myself, for, cause I blame myself for my abuse. I believe there was mm. something inherently wrong with me that made good people do bad things, which is so messed up. Cause I didn't, you know, it was the bad people who did bad things. It wasn't me who caused me bad things, but I did a lot of forgiveness work for them too. A lot of people struggle with the idea of forgiveness, thinking that it's like saying what they did was not important or not bad or not, or, or that it was okay somehow. That's not what forgiveness is. Forgiveness is when you stop renting space in your head to them. Mm-hmm. Where you say, I choose to release my attachment to the suffering you caused. And I let I set it free. And whether you're able to ever love that person, if you, you know, if you again, if you ever love them or whatever is aside from the forgiveness process, which is for you, it's not for them. As you evolve, it becomes for them too. Because what I, one of the most important things I learned, Olivia, is that every single experience has a gift for you in its hands, if you're willing to accept it. And so I am so grateful that I got the lupus and scleroderma because it sa- instead of killing me, it saved my life. It woke me up. You know, you have so much wisdom. Thanks. And, and you, and you, you've been sharing so much throughout this entire experience. Um, I'm, you know, and just through the, the journeys, I mean, for what that soul, um, what, it, what is it? I, and I had written it down, but disease is a soul <laughs> screaming through the body. That's one of my favorites. Um, and, and what you just said just now, like, it, it's so good. What is something else like of wisdom that you can share with the audience? One of the, uh, another really important thing I had to come to terms with and realize was that every, as I said, everyone's fighting a hard battle and it looks, mm-hmm. we see other people living their lives and making these terrible mistakes in our minds where they're taking drugs or they're engaging in risky sex or they're leaping out of tall buildings and, you know, doing crazy stuff. And we think they're nuts. You know, why are they doing these things? Every single thing we do is our attempt to be happy. And sometimes our, our belief in what will make us happy is, is messed up. It's skewed because of our past. But everything, you know, recognizing that everybody wants to be happy was a big revelation for me because I thought what they were doing these terrible things, they didn't want to be happy. The opposite was true. They do. So recognizing it, everyone wants to be happy and then doing everything in my power to make, to help them find happiness was a big, big thing for me, not making people happy and doing things for them in a way that takes away their empowerment and their ownership of it, but in a way that, that, that lifts as you climb kind of, kind of philosophy, that African proverb, lift as you climb. You yeah. don't want to be a martyr. You don't want to do everything for them. You don't want to disempower them. What you want to do is be there for them, see them and see the divinity in them. That's what namaste means. You know, the divine in me sees the divine in you. And it's a principle I try to live by when I'm with in the presence of somebody that I in the past had not been comfortable with or didn't like working to see the divinity in them and the fact that they're trying with the, the things they've done that offended me in some way because they thwarted what I wanted or didn't want um, helps me to recognize that they're just human and they're doing the best they can with what they've got. It makes me more patient. 
Yeah. Cause I mean, you deal, you deal with some people that don't do some great things Mm -hmm. in your career field. You do. And you, and in order to, I mean, you don't just get named like, like among the happy 100 people, like, you know, like, like what, you don't just get named that. And I'm okay. This is actually very timely because I'm dealing, I, at my part-time serving job, I've got this guy that I call him a dictator. I should probably change that, but he's just not very nice. Even like some of, and I, I, I get along with most people. And if I don't get along with them, I still, you know, respect, and I will respect the man, but the way he speaks to people mm. is not good um, for, it's not conducive. He's a, he has a very authoritarian um, leadership style mm. and that is not conducive for our establishment. Mm. And um, I choose to just not want to deal with him. I'm not going to do like, I do my job, but I'm not going to um, pretend or have these conversations with them. How would you approach approach this situation? I have two approaches. One is that um, one time I was dealing with a very toxic person in my life and I went back to see the Tibetan Buddhist Lama and I said, you know, how do I deal with this person who is verbally abusive? And he said, get them out of your life, basically. In, in this very thick Tibetan accent, he, he said to me, you know, if somebody is not willing, you know, if they're not on a path, to improve themselves and they're hurting other people, you don't you don't owe it to them to make space for them in your space. The other thing to consider is twist, turning things inside out and upside down by looking at it from his perspective. Why is he acting like that? Does he is he really inside a little boy who has no confidence and he feels like he needs to over overcompensate to prove himself, to show people that he's super smart, to show people that he's a good leader because he feels inadequate in those areas, which may be true. And that often happens with managers who get in positions of authority and they feel that they have the imposter syndrome where it's like, oh my gosh, I don't know what I'm doing. People are going to think I'm a fraud. Uh, I'm I'm faking this till I make it. Um, He may, you know, there are people who are narcissists who genuinely have an overestimation of their value and their intelligence and their worth. But most people who are like that are doing it because they're scared of something. They're afraid Mm -hmm. or, uh, and, and, they're not seeing what they're afraid of. They're just acting the way they act, thinking that that's going to get them approval or get you to like them or get you to obey them to do what they say. So looking at it from, from his perspective and thinking about where is he coming from gives you a little insight into you know, who he is and what his motives are, which can either which can do a couple of things. It can make you more patient with him. When he acts like that. And the other thing is it makes you more able to or better able to guide the conversation so that it it is not as toxic. One of the important things is that we set boundaries for ourselves, Mm -hmm. you know, inviting being empathetic and sympathetic and compassionate does not mean being a doormat. Uh, I I love this little this little story about a cobra that kept terrorizing a village. It was biting people, biting people, biting people. And. uh, the the Buddha went to the snake one day and said, why are you biting everybody? He said, I'm a snake. You know, that's what I do. And the Buddha's like, well, that's not getting you anywhere. <laughs> you know, consider, you know, be compassionate, be kind. And he came back to the village. Buddha came back to the village one day and found the snake laying in a ditch half dead. And he said, what, what happened? And he said, well, I did, as you said, I was kind and compassionate and I didn't bite anybody. And, and they took advantage of that and they beat me. And the Buddha said, Ah, I told you not to bite. I didn't tell you not to hiss. Mm. 
So having strong boundaries for yourself around this person, around any toxic person is really important and set and, and not just having those boundaries, but defending them and saying, I'm sorry, but I won't be talked to like that. Or, you know, whatever you need to say to affirm that boundary and let them know they've gone too far. He may probably is not consciously aware of how he's coming across. Most people are driving in the, in the dark with blindfold on without a clue where they are or what they're going, what's going to happen. There's my dogs in the background agreeing. <laughs> but, you know, I think it's also like, thank you for, for saying all of that, because I think that there's, and you're, I know you're not like this, but there's this toxic positivity of thinking that everything's great. You're never going to run into problems after you do. And I know that you're not like this. So I thought this would be a great question to ask you because you know how to deal with difficult people as well. Um, and I mean, I mean, you were a Marine, you know, like you, a female Marine. Mm-hmm. Um, and that, that goes a lot into it too. I mean, you are a badass grandma, like, like you're a badass woman. And I, I, that's just so cool, but it's like, it's so important to not be that doormat, to have those boundaries and also acknowledge that everybody does not need to be in your life. You don't have to share room for them. And one of the things, one of the gifts that all this held for me in its hands was that ever since I dealt with the memories of the abuse and dealt with my own flaws, you know, work, I still work hard to identify my own flaws where I'm being manipulative, not trying to be cruel, but to get my way and things like that. Um, I found that, how do I say it? I lost my train of thought for a second. I found that, um, all these things. Okay. So the gift that it held for me in its hands was that I had a great, not just a greater awareness of who I was, but an enlarged view of the world. And I don't have toxic people in my life anymore because as I began to set boundaries and do my healing work, it's like those people just floated away. I haven't been inappropriately spoken to or anything in decades in two decades now, because I think part of it's a vibe I've got now mm-hmm. of because even when I was in the Marine Corps, I was a pussycat and a pushover and a people pleaser. But now I've grown into my badass grandma bit. And I sort of have this little bit of a chip on my shoulder that says, I am a loving, compassionate person, but don't push it. No. Oh, it, that just gave me so much inspiration. I, um, it was like the oomph I needed for the day for sure, because yeah, like I, I relate to being a people pleaser. I say I'm a recovering people pleaser and I'm still working on my recovery in that area. And it's one of those, are you empathic? I think I am. I mean, and, and part of that is the trauma response when you're a child and you've been, you know, you're being abused by people. You learn to read the energy of people very, very quickly. You know, is this person coming? Is my dad going to walk in the door? And is he going to be in an angry mood that could endanger me? Or is he going to be in a happy mood? And so within seconds, I can meet somebody and in a second, have a pretty good idea of where they're coming from. And I can spot, I can, I can spot a predator with this instinct that is uncanny, Mm -hmm. you know, and just like predators, predators, you know, it's almost like they have a playbook, but they can read your energy too. They look for people who are, who have no self-confidence. This is not victim blaming in any way because you do not deserve ever to be abused. Nobody does, but they look for people who probably, um, 
have no self-confidence. They don't, they, they kind of hunch over and look a little afraid. They, they don't look, uh, they're looking for extra approval. They're looking for attention, affection. They'll do anything to get it. And so when that energy shifts in the person, the, the survivor um, who does their healing work, your energy shifts to one that says, don't mess with me because you're going to find out what's going on here. They perps can read that energy just as easily and say, I'm not even going to try. Mm-hmm. And that's why I don't have people like that in my life anymore. They, they look at the way I live my life and the way I care myself and they think mm, she's not a good target. Yeah, that's, and I mean, with the work that you do, you know, and you do have, you know, you, you come into, you know, working for the, you know, in North Carolina, the the defense attorneys, um, attorney general's office, you, you deal with the general public. Uh, (laughs) And and sometimes it's not the best of the best that that you're dealing with. Nope. It wasn't. And that's what, that was some time ago that I worked for the, the attorney general's office, but I, you're right. I dealt with all kinds of people. I dealt with survivors, the people who were still in the victim mode and had not yet worked their way to survivor mode. I dealt with um, surviving loved ones of people who had been murdered. You know, the parents who lost a child to gun violence or something like that. I've dealt with criminals. I've dealt with, wow, a lot of rape, rape victims, a lot of domestic violence victims. I've dealt with the courts that deal with those people or don't appropriately deal with those cases. And so I've seen it kind of from all angles. And having that ability to um, relate to other, to the survivors and be more empathic helps me to better able, better figure out what they need, what resources they need and how to help them. I've gone a long way from the old days where I would say, someone needs help. Let me make the calls for you. Let me take you to your appointments. Let me do it all for you. That martyr thing. I was really stuck there. I was people pleaser extraordinaire to saying, here are some resources that you can check out because if the person doesn't own the action, they're not going to take it seriously. I call it my speed bump theory. I would attract people who um, liked me and wanted to impress me. And in my old days, in my 30s, up to my 30s, I would say, okay, well, um, I see all this potential in you. I'm going to help you be a better person. And I would say, do this, this, and this. And they would start trying, rearrange their lives and start trying to meet my expectations, not theirs, mine. And then slowly they would veer off to their original path. And then what's the saddest of all is that they would feel like they disappointed me when in fact I was the one who was, you you know, feeding my ego the whole time. Mm. I was, I was doing all these wonderful things to help other people for egotistical purposes. It wasn't until I started doing these acts of kindness when I became so ill that it went, it wasn't about me anymore. It was about being as genuinely there for another person, which meant also empowering them while I was doing something kind for them. That, that my efforts became not only powerful, but started coming back to me tenfold. I mean, before I would do these things for people it, from ego and I wasn't getting anything back. Mm-hmm. And I don't do acts of kindness now to get anything back, but I'm telling you, it comes. Yes. I, I've recently um, discovered that um, myself, but I know that egoic state of being a do-gooder because then it's, it's also a defensive, a defense mechanism, especially yes. as a person that's a people pleaser. It's like, well, I do all these good things and more people will love me and like me. And 
Yeah. Yeah. And, and it, it's just, I will, it'll, it's protection. It's extra added protection too, because I'm so good, but then it's so shallow. It's so when, when, the, when the things are not, when you're doing it for your best interest instead of that person's best interest. And yes, people have to have some sweat in the game when it comes to they this do. personal development change thing, because it's not easy. Like, oh, I'm so happy you touched on that. Like, cause it's, it's, it's real. Yeah. And I, I was married to a, a man who sounds very much like the, the person you work with, kind of circle back to that. And um, you may notice that people fawn around him, that they try to, that they get extra nice around him, trying to get him to be nice to them. You may see that. You may see that happening. You may feel the, the need yourself to, to be as nice as you can be to him so that he will not be a total jerk back. It's not effective. That's when I noticed this a level of growth in myself because he had only, he came for Valentine's day weekend and Friday, I'll just, I'll just give you the, the deets Friday. He was really nice and, you know, polite and stuff like that. And I'm like, I'm working with him. And I, I used to be like that people pleaser. Like I needed to prove my worth and my work to, to management and all this other stuff. And then I started really like getting under the adoption of, I only seek the approval of God. Well, on Saturday, he flipped the script completely and he was he screamed at us on at the, like in our pre-shift saying that we don't value each other. Well, that morning I had volunteered at the overnight warming center and I literally cleaned up feces off the ground from a homeless person. Mm -hmm. And I value my coworkers and for some person to come in and say this. And who's literally not valuing you while he's doing it. Right. And say this, I was just like, okay. And at first I would, and my coworkers now we're all adults. So it's fine dining. We, we're not, we are not there to seek the approval of this man at all. And, um, so it was, there was one coworker that told them Tim to stop talking to us that way, because we were, when it came to running food, he was just, Hey, get this. And like, just very aggressive. And, um, I, I would do my job. I was running, like it was a really busy weekend. Um, I was run, I had the biggest section um, that weekend and I just, I kept doing my job. And I mean, he would, he would try to talk to me and have make conversation with me, but I'm at that point that it's like, oh, that's not necessary. Uh, simply because I don't need to prove myself to him and his energy, like I'm, I'm there for the guests that come in and to make money at the end of the day. I... <laughs> Like, I'm not there for you to like me. This is not a pop popularity show, but mm-hmm. I think the old me would wanted, would have wanted to prove like, and I would have even told him, you know, this is what I was doing this morning. And this is the things that I do in the community. I know I don't need to even tell you all that, but that was just a moment for me, a realization of growth. Um, Cause yes, old me, I would have had to prove. Because you can't get rid of every toxic person in your life. It's if, if it's in your work environment, you're stuck with them. Or sometimes if you're related to them, you just can't cut off contact for some reason. Mm-hmm. And so you have to deal with those toxic people. And in, in uh, my books, Badass Parenting, Heroic Parenting, and my upcoming book, Unfair Advantage, I address bullying and cyberbullying of kids. And I talk about mm-hmm. ways to train a bully to leave you alone. And some of the principles there apply to this situation. You Bullies are looking for your react. They feed off your reaction. They, that's what they want. They want to see you get upset. They want to see you cry. They want to see you cringe, whatever, or, or defer to them, whatever it is they're looking for. That's what feeds them. 
And so to train a bully to leave you alone, you deny them the satisfaction of that thing over a long period of time until they get tired of you, you become less attractive as a target because you're not feeding them. So in a situation, I've been in work situations like this with toxic managers. And now I would, if I was in a situation like that, I would do like what you're doing is distance yourself and say, or what your coworker did when, when they're ranting, I'm sorry, you can't talk to me like that. Turn around and walk away. But you got to still deal with them in the future. But if you mm-hmm. set those boundaries and maintain them long enough, he's going to learn what's appropriate and what's not. Because he obviously learned inappropriate ways to talk to people that are, you know, at, at three and five and seven and 17 mm-hmm. that are impacting how he's treating people today. But you have the power of choice about how you respond rather than reacting to him about how you respond. And it sounds like you're responding in a way that is good for you. And that's important because we all deserve to be treated with respect. And when people aren't respecting us, we do not have to tolerate that. In a work environment where you he's your boss and you're stuck with that, you have to tolerate it to a certain extent, but you can also make it clear what your boundaries are. And that's what you're doing. So good and for I mean, you. He literally, he's only in town like every couple of months. So it's not like he's somebody that we really got to deal with. Um, but, you know, it's just, it was like a, it was not what our team needed um, mm-hmm. that, that weekend. And me working with so many leader, like, leaders and stuff like that. And being in such a transition in my own life, it was just like, you wonder why employee retention is declining in the workforce. Employee engagement is probably in the tank. Mm -hmm. And so many different, I mean, we're a million dollar restaurant, you know, like Mm -hmm. the one I work at and our company are, are the owner of our company is a billionaire. Um, We are not like, we have $60 steaks. Okay. Like $11 potatoes. Like we're, it's not, it's not that type of situation that it's like, we're not, not qualified people. And I'm not saying that anybody that works at a lower establishment deserves to be treated worse, but we know what standards are. We know what expectations are. And it's just, I'm so happy we touched on this today because I know a lot of people listening to this have to deal with uncomfortable situations, uncomfortable management positions. And it's like, well, I can't just be happy all the time. Deal with- yes, you can. You've got to protect your peace and you've That's got to right. set well, boundaries. protect your peace. Absolutely. Fight for your peace if you have to. I mean, it's just, it makes all the difference in the world when you can release, release attachment to what's happening. And you could, you could actually take another step and do him a favor by talking to somebody higher up in the organization saying, this man needs coaching. He needs mentoring. He needs coaching himself to improve his leadership skills if he's going to be a good leader. And he may not, he may find out it was you and he may be curious and he may take it out on you and all sorts of stuff. But in the long run, you are doing him a huge favor by doing that. Yeah. And doing, doing your team a favor. He needs coaching. Mm-hmm. He, he really does. He really does. Um, he needs therapy. <laughs> <laughs> so back to your book, that's the book that's coming out. Tell me more about that. Okay. Well, badass parenting and heroic parenting are for parents of kids zero to, to nine. And they're about how to empower your children at all age levels up through zero to nine to recognize and avoid dangerous people and encounters and then fight your way out of a situation if you have to. So I cover everything from bullying and cyberbullying to digital dangers, sexting and sextortion and things like that to sexual molestation, assault, to sex trafficking and even abduction in, in badass parenting, heroic parenting. Now, badass parenting and heroic parenting are actually the same book. But heroic parenting is a PG-rated version of badass parenting because 
badass parenting is not PG rated. <laughs> it's funny. It's snarky. It's totally inappropriate. I had so much fun writing it. And then I wrote a clean version of it and they're selling 50, 50. So half the people buy one and half the people buy the other. And so now I'm working on unfair advantages, which is going to be for parents of kids uh, 10 to 18. And it's going to cover the same kinds of topics, but in a more, at a higher level, I'm also going to cover uh, sexual consent and what it is and what it isn't and how to practice it. I talk about how to uh, teach your kids to um, utilize their three superpowers, their intuition, their boundaries, and their, their moxie, their willingness to defend those boundaries. I talk about how to take a kid who's not confident and help them become more confident, kind of do a, a, a makeover, not a, not a makeup makeover kind of thing, but a um, mental makeover. And I talk about how to fight, teach them to fight like a rabid Tasmanian devil if they're backed into a corner and need to fight for their lives. Just using their bodily weapons. They don't have to, have to know how to, they don't have to know how to use um, self-defense moves or martial arts moves. They just know, have to know how to scream and bite and kick and scratch and gouge and pinch and do whatever it takes to get away from a bad person. Those are such good and helpful mm. books. Yeah. Oh man. Like I'm already thinking of people it. I can refer them to. Oh, good. Oh, I love it. I love it. I love it. My first book was called Neptune's Gift, Discover, Discovering Your Inner Ocean. And it's, a, I was reading um, Tuesdays with Maury by Mitch Album. And in, toward the end of the book, he had this one paragraph story about an average wave who is terrified because he learns he's going to crash on the shore. And I was so inspired by this little story that I sat down in 24 hours, I wrote this book. And it only takes an hour to read. And it's about the journey this average wave takes with this mentor wave, this larger wave who teaches him that he's not a mere wave, but the ocean itself. And the, and the things about kindness and gratitude and generosity and all the things that make for a joyful life until he approaches the shore with joy and gratitude and appreciation and excitement even over this new transition that he, he's, he's going to go from being a wave to being part of the sand and then being part of the ocean again. The greater the greater whatever you want to call it. Acceptance, the cycles. Yeah. I'm going to send you a copy of that book. Yeah, definitely. Oh my goodness. This is for kids too. It's a great book to read to kids because it's like spirituality 101. I love that. And I'm so excited to read it because I think we, we can get so lost in what is going on in the world. What's, you know, the, our current struggles and situations and not actually going with the flow, not actually being with this whole experience, not experiencing the whole thing, just being, and, and so many things we get, yeah. yeah, we get stuck in, in the, the memories that we have or the thinking future, future forward and not actually being in the now. Mm-hmm. And I definitely have a feeling that, you know, that talks about that. That as causes well. most of the suffering people experience. They are looking back in the past and either regretting or missing something that happened in the past, just the past is gone. You can't change that. Or they're anticipating something in the future, usually something terrible. So they have expectations. They have attachments to both. They have attachments to their memories and they have attachments to what's going to happen in the future. And it is truly by releasing attachment to the outcome and, and finding your, and, and putting your, keeping yourself in the present moment, because that's the only moment that exists. It's the only moment you can control. You can't control tomorrow today in this moment. Although you can make choices in this moment that will affect tomorrow. That's why I love the fact that we go to sleep at night and we wake up in the morning. It's, it's a brand new opportunity to say, I don't care that I was a drug addict yesterday. I don't care that I was an alcoholic. I don't care that I was 
um, sleeping with too many people. I don't care. I don't care. I don't care. Today, I can do something different. Now, I'm not saying getting over addictions is not like the, the hardest thing in the world to do, but you can make a choice in every single moment to take it, take actions that your that yourself will thank you for five years from now. Do something every day that your five year you know your five year older self will will thank you for. That's a that's a good key to a happy life. For me, that's whether it means doing it down or whatever it is, you know. Yeah, yeah. I um, and you know, on the side of addictions, I find that for me, um, looking at addictions as habits that just don't serve you, um is a different way to, to really coping and, and getting over and being honest about, about them and mm-hmm. not having all this like stigma around them. Um, because we all have addictions because we all have habits that do not serve us. Yes. Um, and so like looking at drug addicts or people that are having alcohol issues as, um, bad people, you or know, weak people like I or- used Right. How awful is that? I used to believe they were just weak people, weak, weak willed people. And that's not true. That's not true. And so, you know, if you, if you go back to what we talked about earlier and you recognize that everyone wants to be happy and the crazy things, ineffective things are doing to be happy, the reason they, they have pain inside of them that they, and their coping skill is aided by the drugs or the alcohol and which makes them feel happier. Yes. So they're seeking happiness through the drugs or seeking happiness through the alcohol, through the, the, uh, you know, promiscuous sex, whatever there's the, whatever way they're seeking happiness, they're trying to fill a hole inside them, but that hole can only be filled from inside out. It can't be filled from outside in. Yes. You have to, Oh God, let's talk about self-love for a minute. I used to loathe myself, Olivia. Mm-hmm. I thought I was just the worst thing on the planet. And I did, I lived that way for the first 40 years of my life. Absolutely hating myself. And then over time, as I did my work, the hard work that it takes to heal from trauma, and I looked myself in the mirror, honestly, and saw my own machinations, the way that I'm, the ways I manipulate people, the ways I use people, the ways my ego takes over and was running the show. I wasn't in charge. My ego was totally in charge of everything and not beating myself up for it, but forgiving myself for it. And over and over again, having to catch myself and say, oh, I'm doing it again. That's my ego and messing up again and again and again and catching myself and messing up and catching myself. You know, by doing that hard work, um, over time, I began to forgive myself and love myself. And now today, I'm like a teenage boy. I'm obnoxious about it. I mean, I'm like, I'm like a five-year-old in Batman t-shirt, honey. I love myself. And I just think, you know, not like I'm special or better than anybody, but in a way that is so authentic. I see myself for who I really am, a divine being. Mm-hmm. And there's nothing wrong with me. I'm goofy and I'm crazy and I'm socially awkward as hell, but I'm, I'm perfect in, in the way that, you know, God meant us as perfect beings. We were born pure, perfect, divine beings, and we still are. Nothing, nothing has changed there. The only thing that's changed is our perception of ourselves. I, I love that. I call that looking in the dirty mirror. Yeah, I like that. That's, you know, looking at all the things that you, you don't want to really admit in public mm-hmm. and, you know, you don't want mm-hmm. to even admit to yourself, the good, the bad, the ugly, and then looking at that and accepting the things that you, who you are, the mm-hmm. things that you want to change, working on changing those and the things that, you know, you're, you're fine with living with and really loving yourself unconditionally. 
so many people put conditions on the love that they have for themselves. And so, and that's what I find. One of the things that I struggle with clients I have struggle with is really loving ourselves with, for one, not always being overproductive, you know, not feeling like we have to do so much to love ourselves or not have to look a certain way. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yes. And, and that's exactly how you explained that, you know, because I, I mean, really doing the healing work, doing the uncomfortable things that you, you've been facing, what you've been avoiding and accepting who you are. And I, I really think that that's really what it comes to for, for genuinely loving yourself and for being happy in your life and with who you are, because you're not going to be happy from, from just external factors. It's, it's you all don't have to earn. You don't have to earn it to be, to, to love yourself, but you do have to look in that dirty mirror because until you acknowledge your own head games, your own dramas that you're playing out on other people, you can't be an authentic person. And it's hard to love yourself if you're not being authentic. Mm-hmm. But once you achieve that, that, that level of authenticity, where you're really honest with yourself about who you are and when you screw up and then you try to fix it and make a different choice next time, self-love lies there. And it's, it's glorious. It is absolutely glorious. I've gone from living a life that was doing this, the little bipolar journey I was on to living a life up here. That is so it's like an aquifer of joy that no matter what's happening in my life, that never goes away. I go like this now, not like this. I'm not, you know, every, every drama isn't driving my actions. I'm not reacting constantly to life. I'm responding to it. And I try to respond in the most loving way possible. And I mess up, but I don't beat myself up over it. When I do, I say, wow, that was, that, that was a major fail, but I learned something here. I look for the gift that failure brought to me. And then I apply to the next situation and try to do better. So it's not being honest with yourself. is not to beat yourself up over anything. It's to help you sharpen that knife, that knife of, so that you can think more clearly and act more, more lovingly and be a better person. The person you are meant to be, who you already are, that's all covered up by our, our perception of ourselves as being bad or inadequate or, or unloving, un, uh, unlovable. I've realized that on my healing journey, and I mean, you might've realized this too, mm-hmm. that the best way to do that is really to look at it from a learner's mindset than a judger's mindset Mm. while you're learning about yourself and you're really discovering yourself underneath the ego underneath the society, like constructions that you've, you know, had, um, and what you feel like you should have been and and really becoming who you are. Um, and we're always becoming, and I know you're always becoming because you're always evolving and changing and having amazing conversations with people and expanding your knowledge because you are a person that is forever growing. So it's, to me, it's, you know, and, and that's how you can go with that smaller, smaller way because it's a level of acceptance while you're responding oh, yeah. and reacting, you know? Acceptance and allowing. And for those listeners who are curious about what the dirty mirror really means, beyond just, you know, one, one way to do this, a concrete way to do this is to get a journal, a diary, whatever you want, and make a list of all the things you've done that you think make you a bad person, whether it's when you shoplifted, I shoplifted when I was 10. We got caught by the police, we got taken to the police station. It was terrifying, absolutely terrifying. So I shoplifted, I had sex with inappropriate people. Um, I've lied, I've lied, I've lied, I've lied. And by making a list of all the things you think make you a bad person, nobody ever has to see this. You can burn it the moment you write it. You can throw the trash can, do whatever you want with it. But until you acknowledge those things that you believe are making you a bad person, 
and you got to remember the manipulation here and the ego-driven behaviors you've used, then you can start forgiving yourself and working on healing from those and start changing your behavior. But as long as you're unconscious about your behavior, you can't change it. Why would you? That manager you're dealing with, why would he change his behavior if he's unconscious to it? He can't see that he's being a, a tyrant. Something in him has to shift. He has to be willing to look at himself in that dirty mirror and say, wow, is that who I really want to be? And make a choice otherwise. Self-awareness is such a powerful tool. It's, it's the key to everything. You know, I, I, one of the books I read in graduate school was called The Doubling of the Self. And it was about Nazi doctors. I, it, was about, it was called Nazi doctors. And it was about doubling of the self. And, and, you know, it was about how can people in Nazi Germany, could they go to work and torture people and kill people and shoot people and put them in the ovens and then go home and kiss their wives and go to church on Sunday and believe they're a good person? How can they look in the mirror? And the fact is, there's a doubling of the self that occurs where we have a schism in our minds. We shove all that garbage that we see, you know, the, the, the garbage things we're doing, the bad things we're doing in the back of the junk drawer. Mm-hmm. So nobody has, nobody sees them and we're, we're largely unaware of them. And we put out to the face of the world, this beautiful front, you know, but I learned a long time ago, comparing your insides to someone else's outsides is not effective. We tend to believe we're garbage and see everybody on Facebook and Instagram and everything else, the perfect mothers, the perfect models, the perfect business owners, whatever it is that we think they're doing such a great job. They're a mess just like we are. We're looking at their outsides and comparing them to our insides. And, and there's no way to win that game. Mm-hmm. Remember that your insides probably look a lot like their insides. And your outside probably looks a lot like their. You're doing better than you think you are. And you look better than you think you do. Most people. But do that work, look in the dirty mirror, make the list, read it over and over again and, and, and go through the process of forgiving yourself and asking in your mind for forgiveness from others or even in person. I think one of the, I'm not a, an alcoholic, but one of the steps of the, one of the 12 step, part of the 12 step program is to make amends and ask for forgiveness. And doing that, if, even if you're just doing it in your mind, I had so many bubble baths where I did that over and over again, where I, I wasn't able to go back and, and make amends with the people that I had harmed consciously or unconsciously. Mm. And so I would call, call up the memory and I would sit with that for a minute and think, wow, I really hurt that person or I really did something deceitful or I lied to them, you know, and then I would forgive myself for doing it. And I would, in my mind, ask forgiveness from them for what I'd done. And it works. Over time, the pain of that betrayal of your of yourself and others heals. It does. And it feels so good when it does, because then you can look at yourself not through the dirty in the dirty mirror. You're looking at a sparkling, clean, crystal clear lake. And it's beautiful. This this was so necessary and so helpful. Like for the person listening to this or watching this, like you're really getting so much value in this one episode. Like what? Like we just, we talked about how to really get genuine happiness and to really heal regardless of adversity, how to deal with toxic people, how to set those boundaries. Like we touched on so like CJ. Oh my God. You're such a badass. I Oh my goodness. Thank you so, so, so much for, for joining me today. I'm going to have to have you back on. I don't, I don't say that. Often. I would love that. I would oh, love that. Cause there's so, I have, so I have many a gift for your listeners today. Anybody who goes to my website and sends me a short story about something they did that was 
an act of kindness they did or something that was healing for them, or they can even share their personal story with me. If they go on my website at cjscarlet.com and that's C-J-S-C-A-R-L-E-T, scarlet, like the color red with one T, not like Ms. Scarlet.com, <laughs> um, I'll send you a total badass bracelet. Anybody who writes to me and they have to send me their mailing address too. And I'll send them a total badass cuff bracelet for doing that. Oh my goodness. Thank you. Thank you guys. Thank you so much. Listeners, viewers, write in, get this. Oh my goodness. This is awesome. Again, thank you so much. And her, like I said in the beginning, her links are in the show notes below. Awesome. Thank you so much, Olivia. I just enjoyed this. I can't wait to come back. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Empowered Woman Badass and Unfiltered Podcast. If you found any value in this, please consider sharing and subscribing. Now go out and be a badass.